Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We're here to catch you up on all things health and wellness. So let's get into it. About 200 million women around the world have endometriosis. Maybe you've heard of this condition, but you're not really sure what it's all about. Well, March happens to be Endometriosis Awareness Month, so we wanted to take this chance to share a little bit about this disease. It can be very painful. What happens is that the endometrium, that's the lining of the uterus, grows outside of the uterus. For instance, it might grow on or in other parts of your reproductive system, like on your ovaries or in your fallopian tubes. It could also grow on your bowels or bladder. And it's rare, but endometriosis can grow outside of a woman's pelvic area. If you have endometriosis, your periods might be really heavy. You could have bad cramps, pain, which may happen not only during your period, bloating, and spotting between periods. Now, other things can cause some of these symptoms, so you should check with a doctor if you have pain that affects your daily life. Doctors don't know exactly what causes endometriosis. The condition is most common among women in their 30s and 40s, but any woman who has menstrual periods can get it. Endometriosis tends to run in families, and the hormone estrogen seems to make it worse. But there's nothing you do that could have caused it. It's definitely not your fault. Although there's no cure, there are treatments for endometriosis. These include hormones, pain meds, and surgery. But it's one thing to know about endometriosis and something else to live with it. Joining us to talk about what it's really like is Dr. Carly Goldstein. She's a gynecologic surgeon who specializes in endometriosis surgery at the Sechkin Endometriosis Center in New York. And she has endometriosis herself, so she knows exactly what her patients are dealing with. Dr. Goldstein, thanks for joining us. Of course. When did you first notice that something wasn't right? And what were your symptoms like back then? When I was actually a teenager in high school, I had my first period when I was 13. I remember having heavy cramps for my periods. I was able to go to school and everything. I didn't stay home, but I remember them being quite heavy at the time. And so I first saw a gynecologist when I was 17. And I remember very vividly that he told me, my uterus was tilted backwards, and I may never be able to get pregnant, and I should be on the birth control pill to control things. Both my mom and my maternal grandmother had hysterectomies at young ages. My, my grandmother at 26 for pelvic reasons, and my mom at 33 for endometriosis and to get rid of her periods, basically. I was sort of aware of the disease. I didn't think at the time that I had it, but I was aware that it happened to them, and maybe it would happen to me, too some point. So how have your symptoms changed over time? Actually, in my 20s, you know, I was on the pill for a while and my periods were really much better on the pill. I really didn't have such bad cramping and period pain. I really felt okay from a gynecologic perspective for a long time. And so I would say that throughout my 20s when I was in college and when I was out of college and working my first jobs, I was really feeling okay from that perspective. Um, my symptoms were actually GI in nature. I didn't correlate them with endometriosis. Um, I had severe diarrhea. I had a little bit of weight loss from that. I was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, and I saw countless gastroenterologists. I had three colonoscopies in my 20s, um, all to figure out what was happening. And, you know, everyone kept saying it was, it was, uh, 
it was irritable bowel syndrome and it looked like inflammation on my colonoscopy and maybe I should give up gluten and it wasn't celiac tested on blood tests, but that my intestinal lining looked just as inflamed as celiac or early Crohn's on colonoscopy. So nothing was definitive. And they told me at the time, you know, diet doesn't really work, but if you want to try gluten-free, you can. And I did, and I, I'm still gluten-free and I've done that for years. And it did help somewhat with my intestinal symptoms a little bit. And so, you know, I was tried on different therapies for IBS, all these different things that sort of may have helped temporarily, but not really get at the root of the problem. So I saw integrative doctors, I saw acupuncturists, I saw everyone you could imagine to try to figure out why I was having bloating and bouts of diarrhea and I ate extremely healthy and did all kinds of crazy elimination diets to get rid of anything possible that I would react to. And I still had a lot of trouble. Um, but throughout my 20s, I, I never connected the symptoms with my menstrual cycle. And all throughout this time, I was on and off the pill. And I didn't really realize or think about the fact that my symptoms were worsening with my hormones. It wasn't until I was a resident in OBGYN and I studied under Dr. Sachkin and I was operating with him and seeing his patients in the pre-op area all the time and interviewing them. Then I started to hear stories just like mine. And then it sort of hit me, you know, what have I been doing? I'm in medicine and I didn't even realize it, but all of my symptoms are sort of hormone related. And maybe this is another type of endometriosis. And I don't have what my mom had. I don't have the typical awful periods that are debilitating and I'm home in bed, but I had something else. You know, it took me probably 10 years of bowel symptoms before I was able to connect that this was actually endometriosis and not irritable bowel syndrome. It took you 10 years and a medical degree to find out that this is what was going on. And a mentor who deals with this every day. And, and that's really the person that, that changed things. Tell us what kind of treatments you've tried and how have they worked for you? Excision therapy and excision surgery helped me the most. And that's, that is the gold standard for treatment for endometriosis, also for diagnosis. You go in laparoscopically with a little camera and little incisions, and the belly is insufflated or blown up with CO2 gas, so the belly is round, and you can examine everything properly. The surgeon will look all inside of the camera, and then we'll do biopsies of different areas that look suspicious for disease, and that's how it's both diagnosed and treated at the same time. It's called excision therapy, and it really works the best for actually getting rid of the disease, but I also fully believe that it takes a whole lifestyle approach to feel your best all the time. And I usually go to acupuncture once a week, which really helps me. It helps both my mindset, but also it helps when I was having very severe rectal pain. I felt better. Severe bloating, I would get up from the table in acupuncture and my belly would have gone down a little bit and I felt better. And that came along with Chinese herbs. I don't eat a lot of sugar or carbs of any sort. And I do notice that when I cheat on things and when I have things, my belly still gets upset. I like to tell my patients now that it's kind of like, even though you get rid of the disease, your body still is pro-inflammatory. So it has a higher rate to react to things than other people do. So you may spend a lot more time trying to be healthy and 
do yoga or exercise and eat right. But in the long run, it's going to help you if with your overall general health, not just for endometriosis. So it's worth it. I definitely think that it's a whole wellness and lifestyle approach that really helps. And, you know, some people do skin brushing for a lymphatic flow. I think periodic massages, if they're affordable, you can do, you know, there's exercise, breathing, yoga, meditation, if you do that, but all different aspects of just trying to get yourself feeling well from all different aspects, you know? Certainly. Not just the pelvis. Trying to take care of your your whole body versus just treating the disease itself. Exactly, exactly. Raising awareness about a very important condition. Um, Dr. Carly Goldstein, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story with us. Absolutely. Have a great day. Your thyroid is a little gland with a big job. But how much do you really know about all the ways it affects your health? We've got a few questions to help you get to know this important body part. Question one. Your thyroid is shaped like an A, butterfly, B, almond, or C, cactus. It's A. With two side lobes and a bridge in the middle, your thyroid looks like a butterfly. It sits near the base of your neck, just below your voice box, and in front of your windpipe. It has a brownish-red color because it has lots of blood vessels. All right, let's keep going. Question two. Your thyroid's main job is to manage your A, mood, B, blood pressure, or C, metabolism. The answer is C. The gland makes hormones that control how your body uses energy. They affect how your organs do their jobs, like how fast or slow they use oxygen, make proteins, and respond to other hormones. They also play a role in controlling your body temperature, cholesterol levels, and a woman's menstrual cycles. Question number three. You might gain weight if your thyroid is A, overactive, B, underactive, or C, both. It's B. If your thyroid is underactive, it's not making enough hormones. That means your metabolism will slow down, and your body hangs on to salt, water, and fat. That could add up to extra pounds. There's treatment, though, a man-made version of thyroid hormone that you take as a daily pill. If your thyroid is overactive, by the way, it's making too many hormones, and you'll probably lose weight. Question number four, speaking of an overactive thyroid gland, what's another sign that your body has too much thyroid hormone? A, anxiety, B, more bowel movements, C, hand tremors, or D, all of the above. It's D. With an overactive thyroid, you'll notice signs of an increased metabolism, which is all of those symptoms. Weight loss is another key sign, as we mentioned. So is a racing heart, sweating, and sleeplessness. There are a few ways to treat the problem, medicine, surgery, or radioactive iodine, a medicine that shrinks your thyroid to slow it down. All right, question number five. What's the word for a swollen thyroid? A, abscess, B, goiter, C, tumor. It's B, a goiter, and if you have one, you might see a bulge in your neck. It can also make you cough or make your voice sound hoarse. A lot of things can cause it, including a lack of iodine or when the gland makes too much or too little thyroid hormone. 
It can be temporary and go away on its own, but sometimes it's a symptom of a more serious problem. So let your doctor know if you have one. Moving right along to question number six. Who's more likely to have thyroid problems? A, men, B, women, or C, children? It's B, women are more likely to have a thyroid imbalance. In fact, they're about 50 times more likely to have an underactive thyroid than men. Some scientists think it may be related to female hormones like estrogen, but no one knows for sure. And you're more likely to have the problem when you're starting menopause. Last question, true or false? Table salt helps your thyroid function properly. That's true. Most table salt has iodine added in. Iodine is a nutrient that the thyroid uses to make its hormones. Salt isn't the only source. You can get it from eggs, dairy products, and seafood like shrimp, tuna, and cod. Seaweed is also a great source. Impressive, right? Your thyroid does a lot of things. And hopefully now you have a new appreciation for it. If you've ever received an insincere apology, then you know how a poor choice of words can make a tough situation even worse. But saying you're sorry in a genuine way can do wonders to repair damage in your relationships. Seth Gillihan, a clinical assistant professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, recently blogged for WebMD about the right and wrong ways to say you're sorry, and is here today to share some tips on avoiding a botched apology. Dr. Gillihan, thanks for coming back to talk with us. Thank you, Carrie. It's great to be back. Tell us why apologies are so important for healthy relationships. Well, as you suggested in your intro, there is so much forgiveness that's available. People can forgive each other for for all kinds of things that are sometimes shocking. And and maybe the one thing that's hard to forgive is someone who can't admit or, or doesn't recognize when they've done something wrong. So it's it's hard to maintain trust with someone when they've done something that, that clearly to us seems to have violated some expectation in the relationship, but then the person doesn't think they've done anything wrong. And it's hard to imagine continuing on in a relationship with that person. Certainly. And I feel like even though sometimes when you know you've done something wrong, it's still hard to own up to it and really apologize to someone. Why do you think it's so hard for people to do that? I think for a lot of us, our egos hate to apologize because really the the essence of an apology is saying I was wrong. And that can be a hard thing to sit with. I think we, we tend to fight against that idea that I've done something wrong, especially in relation to another person because it introduces a kind of vulnerability. Now we're, we can at least feel that way that we're in a sort of one down position. Like I've done something bad and, and I'm, I'm admitting that and now they're above me in some way. And so it really does take a good deal of trust to be able to apologize to, to know the other person is not going to just kind of uh, use it as, as a weapon against us and say, see, you're a bad person and I'm better than you are. <laughs> of course, that person has never done anything wrong in their life. So, <laughs> no. no. What are some ways that people get apologies wrong? Maybe if you've been on the receiving end of a bad apology, uh, you might know some of these off the top of your head. But what are some, some common ways that people can sort of uh, botch their apologies? Well, there are many different ways to botch it, but they all come down mainly to the same thing, which is, in a way, saying I'm sorry because, you know, we've been taught that's the nice thing to do and nice people say I'm sorry. But 
because it's hard to just sit with that feeling of I was wrong, we take it back in some way. So we might take it back by rationalizing what we're apologizing for, by saying, yeah, I, I was sorry, I just, but you know, I had a long day and I don't like to be interrupted when I'm trying to rest. Or we can even, even a step beyond that, blame the other person and say, I'm sorry, but you did X, Y, and Z. And so really, it's not really an apology. It's a way of, of saying, if, if you're upset, it's your fault because you, you provoked this from me. And then there are ways that I think maybe a little more, more subtle or, or kind of in a, take it in a different direction, like really kind of pouring it on too thick is saying like, I'm so sorry. I, I can't believe it. It's something so terrible. And you know, maybe it's a fairly minor infraction and it, it can maybe unconsciously be a way of trying to, trying to go so far beyond what the other person is expecting for an apology that they end up kind of comforting you and saying, well, no, it's not that bad. And, and then uh, it's really, really not, again, a sin sincere apology. And so, I mean, kind of any time we sort of make the apology about us, like I, I, I'm emphasizing how upset I was by what I did, and I can't believe I would do that, and why would I do such a thing? Then again, it's not really about what an apology needs to be about, which is making it, making it right with the other person. And the final category, I think, is you know, if, we, if we go into an apology expecting a certain reaction from the other person, like they're going to just, their heart's going to melt and they're going to embrace us and thank us. And, and maybe they're going to say, well, it wasn't all your fault because I did, I did this. So really it's both of our fault. Then uh, we're, we're probably not coming from the right place and we're likely to be disappointed and just actually make the conflict worse rather than repairing it. One type of apology you mentioned in your blog was something that to be honest, I'm sure I've said this at some point when you say, I'm sorry if I said something to upset you, which seems innocuous, but then you've pointed out that that kind of puts it back on the person that you're apologizing to. Well, yeah, it does. I appreciate your highlighting that. It does in a couple ways. One is that there's really an implicit question there. It's, did I do something to upset you? But rather than asking that, which might feel a little too confrontational or direct, we couch it in an apology. And so I think that that kind of that indirectness, again, is a form of, of unintentional insincerity. So, you know, better approach probably just to say, did I do something to upset you? And and you're right. It also it puts the onus on the other person that then somehow maybe it's their fault that they're offended. It's not that I did something wrong. It's that you got you got offended. And so, uh, again, it's this it's I mean, that's a. That's a, a common way of, again, using the words, I'm sorry, without really meaning it or without really conveying the essence of what an apology is. So moving on from not so great apologies, what makes a good apology? Well, it's actually pretty simple. And I guess, I guess like so many simple things, it's not easy, but it's, it's pretty straightforward. You want to say, in essence, I was wrong and acknowledge that you hurt the other person and that you care about that, you feel bad about having hurt them, and that you want to do better. And that's pretty much it. You know, it, and especially if, we, if we're letting go of expectations for what their response is going to be. I'm reminded, you know, this, this way of saying I'm sorry, but, but not really meaning it or trying to kind of get away with something. I, I forget which one of our, our kids started this, but, but when they were expected to apologize, sometimes they would say, I'm sorry. 
but not finish it. And of course, it just drives the other kid crazy. This is like, that's not a real apology. I'm not all the way sorry. <laughs> I'm not all the way sorry. I'm sorry, but I'm not. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Yes. So what should you do after you apologize? What are some ways uh, to handle the other person's reaction, even if you don't have an expectation of what they might say or do? What are some things that you can do to sort of help move your relationship forward? Well, you know, after you've, you've talked about the repair that you want to do, that you want to, that you want to make things right, that you want to make it up to the person and do better in the future, then, you know, you, you kind of open up space for the other person. You let their reaction be what it is. You allow for whatever time it may take for them to process your apology. You know, if, if you've been working yourself up to apologize for a few hours or days and, and you say you're sorry, we shouldn't expect the other person to instantly accept it and, and be ready to move on, uh, which includes, you know, making room for their anger. And they might still want to talk about it. They might accept your apology, but not be ready to move on. And, and I think a, a, a common reaction we could have if we apologize, the other person says, yeah, that really upset me because, and they start talking about it. Then our defensiveness really kicks in and we say like, well, I don't know what else you want me to do. I apologized. But maybe there's still, again, that repair work to do that does build trust because you know, usually when someone really apologizes and stands by it, and you think about people who've done that in your own life, you really respect them more, and it, it brings you closer to them, and, and your your feelings toward them, your estimation of them actually increases rather than decreases. So then keeping those things in mind, that, that being willing to accept your responsibility and make it right with a person actually puts you in a place of power, not over the other person, but but power and control over yourself, over your emotions, and over your willingness to do the right thing. Instead of being reluctant to apologize, some people, it seems, over-apologize, uh, even to the point of saying, I'm sorry for things that, that you did not do. Well, I mean, in a way, if we're apologizing for everything, then, then it seems like that changes the relationship that we have with a with an actual need to apologize. I mean, it's kind of like crying wolf, in a way, it's like, so are you, when are you really sorry if you're sorry for everything? At the same time, I mean, I think there's a kind of that, that reflexive apologizing, kind of apologizing almost for one's own existence <laughs> is, you know, has its own, has its own uh, toll that it takes on relationships. It's kind of exhausting to be with someone who's constantly sorry. There's a, a, a French book that I read in college. One of the lines that stood out to me, I won't, I won't say it in French, but but it, it, the translation is, you know, he apologized uh, for himself, even for living. That this is sort of this this perpetual sense of I'm sorry, and you know, it's it's hard to connect with someone who who has that level of sort of apologizing for for being there, especially if you, know, you like being with a person and they're apologizing for for everything, and it does it starts to wear on you because it may fall into that category I described earlier, where you have to do a lot of reassurance of the person there. Maybe it's a, a way of constantly checking, like, did I offend you? Did I do anything wrong? Are you upset with me? And, and uh, you know, not even trying to be ironic, I think some people even end up apologizing for apologizing too much. That doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, some good things to keep in mind the next time you have to say, I'm sorry. Dr. Gillihan, thank you so much for joining us once again. My pleasure. Thank you. Allergy season is here, and for many of us, that means pollen blowing in the wind, along with the watery eyes, runny noses, and sneezes that come along with it. But allergy meds can only go so far, so take these simple steps to control the allergens in your house. Start at the front door. Get an easy-to-clean rubber mat and put it on the porch. Make sure anyone who wants to come in wipes their feet first. For extra protection, ask them to leave their shoes at the door. Next, clear the air inside. An air cleaner with a HEPA filter can capture 99% of the tiny particles that trigger your allergies, like pollen and pet dander. Look for a model tested by the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers that lists a clean air delivery rate. It should be at least two-thirds of the room's square feet. You can also try an electronic air cleaner that changes the electric charge on the polluting particles. These put out ozone, though, so that might make your allergies worse. While you're at it, upgrade your furnace filters to pleated paper models with a MERV, that's an efficiency rating, of 7 to 13. If you're feeling super fancy, go for the electrostatic filter that uses charged particles to trap allergens. And if money is no object, you can opt for a whole house HEPA or electrostatic unit that's part of your heating and air conditioning system. Once the air is all clean, it's time to think about whether it's too wet. Dust mites, which live in fabrics like those on your bed, sofa, and carpets, can trigger allergies, and they love damp air. The good news is a dehumidifier can keep them in check. Just don't go too low. Dry air can irritate your sinuses and make your symptoms worse. You want the humidity level in your house to stay between 30 and 50%. A gadget called a hygrometer can help you keep an eye on it. Speaking of dust mites, do yourself a favor and kick them out of your bed. Choose pillows and comforters with man-made fill instead of down. Invest in allergen-proof covers for your mattress, box springs, and pillows. Want the mites out of your upholstery, rugs, and drapes? Rent a steam cleaner from a grocery or home improvement store. Some even have special solutions to control allergy triggers. And don't forget about kids' toys, which make a dandy home for dust mites. If the label says it's okay, toss them in the washing machine. If they're plastic or wooden, wash them with a damp cloth. Store them in a hanging net, not on the bed. While you're cleaning, upgrade your tools. Trade your old dust cloth for a microfiber cloth. Its electrostatic charge can attract and trap dust in ways no towel or old t-shirt ever could. And swap out your regular vacuum cleaner bags for HEPA filter varieties. Pollen and dust mites aren't the only things that lurk in your house and make you sneeze. Mold loves warm, wet places like your bathroom and kitchen. To get rid of it, scrub it away with soap and water, then disinfect it with a mold-killing product that has 5% chlorine bleach. You can also use hydrogen peroxide or vinegar. A fan, either a portable one or an exhaust fan, can dry the area out and prevent the mold's return. And don't forget the non-humans that share your home. If your pets go outside, use mild shampoo to wash pollen off their coats. If your pets hate baths, wipe their fur with a damp washcloth or pet wipes. Wash bedding and plush toys in hot water at least once a week, and wipe down any plastic toys. Good luck out there this allergy season. For more tips to help you make it through, check the show notes. Our tweak of the week can help you keep your pollen exposure under control this spring. Minimize the time you spend outside between 5 and 10 a.m. and again at dusk. That's when daily pollen counts are usually the highest. And if you are outdoors in the evening, jump in the shower before you hit the hay. 
Otherwise, you'll take all that pollen to bed with you. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.